And that was actually really scary that time because I was working in Manhattan. So like every day that I came into work, there were like less people on the subway, less people on the streets. My store closed down and I was like laid off. In the meantime, I was watching a lot of YouTube videos and I stumbled across all these like fashion history videos. Eventually I was just sort of like, you know what? Like I could probably do this. But it was mostly just my friends and family who would end up watching the videos. But I saw that she tagged me on it in my notifications. And her name is Tessa and she runs the channel Modern Girls. So then I like went to look at the video and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> the, the numbers were just like wild. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Mina Lay, a former economics major who found her career as a fashion YouTuber in the unlikeliest of times. She has amassed a loyal fan base, now nearly topping 1 million subscribers. However, the road to becoming a fashion influencer, pop culture historian, and skilled video essayist began far from the sphere of social media. Mina's first experience with fashion started in the home, looking at her mother's style inspiration board in the closet. I mean, I don't know exactly like what age it started, but when I was young, pretty young, like in elementary school, I remember having a beginning interest in fashion because my mom is very fashionable and she had so many clothes. She had like two closets worth of clothes and she had a bulletin board in her closet with magazine cutouts of uh, things that inspired her. And my mom got me a little bulletin board too to put up in my room. And I would go through like teen magazines. Uh, I think Seventeen was like a big one in Teen Vogue. And I would cut out like what I liked from that the models were wearing and just like put them up together. <laughs> well, my mom is an architect, so she studied design and she also is very artistic. Her dad, so my grandpa, is a painter. So design and art has kind of been in my family for a while. She's always been like very intentional with what she wears because like my mom didn't really want to buy me like new clothes that often. And I felt like very constrained in that sense. So I would just start wearing her clothes. So kind of unintentionally, I wasn't wearing what everyone else was wearing, but mostly because like my mom would not buy me any Lululemon or Juicy Couture. Is fashion even at the forefront at this point? It honestly wasn't, but not necessarily because I wasn't interested in fashion. I was very pragmatic when I was in high school because I grew up in a suburb just outside of DC. And a lot of the kids at my school, like their parents were lawyers or lobbyists and everyone had like a Capitol Hill internship in high school. So I had it like in my head that I was gonna go that same trajectory where I was gonna go into politics, but I've always like loved fashion. It was kind of like my guilty pleasure where it's like, oh, you know, in another world, like I would love to be a stylist like Rachel Zoe or like be on Project Runway with the way that I grew up and the environment I was in, like just felt like there was one pathway for me and I didn't want to go any other pathway. 
and I ended up in Canada. Why did you want to leave home? I wanted to leave home because most kids at my school, like most of my friends were going to college like out of state. And I felt this weird FOMO because I want to be different from my parents. Like I want to go to the same school. And they're experiencing something new. Yeah, yeah. and I'm just like, I, I wanted to experience something new too. Um, so yeah, I just chose to go abroad instead of going in state. What was Miguel look like? Like, like what was that like for you? Oh boy, it was, uh, it was cold. <laughs> I'll tell you that it was really cold. I had only been to Canada once before I, I went to school there. It was definitely different. It's, it's very similar to the U S I think culturally, but it was, it was fun because the drinking age was 18. So you immediately started your college experience, <laughs> right? But legally, legally, <laughs> but it was really cold. And I did feel like people there were very serious. Also, I was in an honors economics program, which sucked. It was terrible. <laughs> I didn't even know what economics was before I joined that course, but my parents were like, oh, that's a really like practical thing to do. And so I went with yes. it. And then you're just like, ah, oh, this is terrible. Yeah. This was like the worst time of my life. Like I did not understand anything. Fashion was definitely not a thing in McGill because it was so cold okay. that I wore the same like puffer coat every day and like these ugly <laughs> snow boots. I was wearing like layers on layers. It is not, it's not cute layering. It's just like layering for warmth. I was really unhappy with my economics program. Like it was breaking my spirit. I was studying so hard. It was at a point where I was spending like a couple months before the midterms and before exams, like just in the library, like all day studying. And I would still not be like at the top of the class. And I just wasn't enjoying it. So I decided to leave and I called my, my parents and I was like, I, I can't, I don't want to finish. I stayed home for a while. My mom was like, you can't just not finish college. Like that's, that's not acceptable. <laughs> like you can't just drop out and not. Is that something you were thinking about doing? It wasn't something I was thinking about doing, but I didn't know when I would want to go back. I was still kind of like getting out of this school mindset and I was trying to reorient to what I wanted to do. But my parents were kind of like on the ball with like, you need to figure it out now. So probably like immediately after I came back, I started looking into other programs and I looked at other schools in Canada, but I don't know, this is annoying of me, but I was just like, oh, like the entirety of Canada is tarnished. <laughs> like, I just don't want to go back there. So I was looking at some other schools, like I was looking in the UK as well. I ended up in Australia. <laughs> So it worked out. And so how did you how did you feel about being there? Was it like a little scary? Were you grateful to be in a new area? Like, like, what were you feeling emotionally? I think I've always romanticized moving to a new place. So I wasn't so scared about like not knowing anyone or not having enough friends because I felt like wherever I go, I can make friends. I can figure things out on my own. So I wasn't like scared or anything. I was kind of excited just to be in a new environment. That point when you were in Australia, I mean, you said like you had a feeling like any place that I go, I will be able to make friends pretty easily. 
Was that the case when you landed in Australia? It actually wasn't. <laughs> like that was just the mindset I had going into it, which is why I was like fine. But I actually had a really tough first year there because a lot of the kids that went to UniMelb grew up in Melbourne. So they had friends from high school. They had these like long-term connections that I didn't have. And the people that I tried to make friends with early on were not very like accepting of me trying to like penetrate their inner circle. So I just felt very sad. I ended up getting a cat to keep me company. In the end, it like it worked out in that way because I started getting on Instagram and I started posting like fashion photos because I was so bored and because I like was craving any kind of connection. So I started like looking for people online to be friends with. And yeah, like I guess that kind of like kickstarted my social media presence. Yeah. And so what were these like fashion photos that you were posting and who were you trying to reach out to? They were really like not not great fashion photos. Like it was like mirror pics because I had no one to take photos of me. I would go to like these like thrift stores and stuff and try to find like a bunch of random clothes and like mix and match with them. And in terms of like finding people, I was just like kind of like looking online for other people who were into fashion, like fashion bloggers to make friends, but also just like get inspiration. I didn't even realize you could make friends until like people started following me back and started messaging me. And I was like, oh my God, like this is so fun. <laughs> Do you remember one of the first messages that you got like, like that made it feel like, okay, this is fun. One of my best friends to this day, I liked her photos. So she, she followed me back because she saw I was in Melbourne because I put it in my bio and then she she messaged me and she was like, oh my God, like I live in Melbourne too. Like let's hang out. And it was just like really nice. And then I just like, I had now an in-person like best friend who I made online. Back then the algorithm was a lot friendlier <laughs> to, to creators. Like it was a lot easier to get discovered. Everything was in chronological order. So I was able to gain like probably about 2000 followers, like kind of like on my own. But the same friend that I, I had uh, just mentioned, she actually had like 20,000 followers at that time. Wow. We started hanging out like every day. So she started like posting about me every day. And like, I kind of absorbed a lot of her followers. And then these like small brands like Unif, which I guess is like kind of big now, but they reached out to me and they were like, oh, could you model for us? So I was like part of like a UNIF campaign. What did that feel like to get recognized for the work that you're putting in? Like, I mean, you started this just because one, you wanted friends, but two, you wanted to just flex a creative muscle and now you're actually getting hit up by brands. Like, did that feel weird? It felt weird for sure. At that time I was like, oh my God, I can't believe my life. And like, but it was, it felt very rewarding in that sense and serendipitous. Like now I think when I, when I work with brands, it's definitely more exhausting because I feel like I'm putting in like a lot more like active effort. But at this time, like this was something I wasn't quite sure I wanted a career in. Like I didn't really see it as a career. I just saw it as like, cool things coming my way, like as I'm finishing my college degree, which also made everything way more fun and like the stakes were lower. And I was just like, I was having a blast at this point in my life. So what are you feeling as you are preparing to leave or leave the country? I was, I was definitely excited to leave because even though I, I really loved like 
the connections I had in Australia, I was getting this weird FOMO because I crossed over LA. I would stop there. And that's like where a lot of these brands that were reaching out to me were based and that, but I would only be there for like a week before I would head back to Maryland. And kind of like after I left, like these brands would like, or these photographers would message me like, are you still in LA? Like, I'd love to shoot you. And I was like, no, I'm not. So in a way I, I started seeing like there was more of a future in America in terms of like accelerating where like my career and like my presence online. So I moved back home for a couple months to get my bearings and everything. And I had my sights set on New York City because New York is like the fashion capital of America. And at this point I was like, I'm gonna be in the fashion industry. So I moved to New York in April, I wanna say of 2019. And I started out as a styling intern, which is probably the worst job <laughs> in existence. It entails lugging around garment bags, like heavy garment bags across the entire city, like the five boroughs, wherever the stylist is working on a shoot and you're using public transport. At least in California, I think if you're working as a styling assistant, you get a car <laughs> so or you have a car. But in New York, Driving is like not, not really a popular thing. So I was just on the subway with these heavy bags. Sometimes the stylist I was working for had enough money to get me an Uber or a taxi, but sometimes not. And I don't know, like I'm, to put in perspective, I'm like five foot one and I weigh like 110 pounds. So like, I was having a tough time. So lugging these giant garment bags was no easy task. Yeah. And then on top of that, that wasn't even the worst part. Like that was kind of like the menial labor that I didn't enjoy. But the worst part was a lot of stylists, they'll actually pull from big stores like Zara and H&M because they can return clothes easily. But I would have to go and return them. And people at the like salespeople, they would always be so exhausted by us coming in. And I totally understand because it'd be like $5,000 worth of Zara clothes. It's like these receipts were just like to the floor and they would have to go through and return all that inventory. As you're working for this, this stylist, like where is your, your fashion focus Instagram? Growth was definitely slower at this point. I think because there was like such a big break between when I was like getting hit up by these brands and when I came back to America, like I kind of lost those connections along the way. And also because they were all based in like LA and I was in New York, it would like go from like 19,000 down to 18,000, back to 19 to 20 and then 19. So I was like also like losing and gaining and losing and gaining. It wasn't just like staying in one place, which definitely made me feel terrible <laughs> at this point in time. Because, you know, even though it wasn't my job necessarily because I was like working as an assistant, it felt like once you reach a certain number of likes on something or reach a certain number of followers, like that becomes your baseline now. So, you know, starting out in Australia, if I ever thought I was going to get to 19,000 followers, I'd be like, you're, you're kidding me. That's so many. But now that you're there, it's like if you're still staying there, you're like, what is wrong? <laughs> So I, I guess I want to then lead this up to beginning of 2020. 
what was, was part of the decision to go back to Maryland? Afterwards, I kind of just had the ick for the entire fashion industry. So I was like, this is not my calling anymore. I'm not even like doing well on Instagram anymore. Like this is, this is not where my career is going to go. This line really struck me. This is not where my career is going to go or perhaps even how it was supposed to go. I think all of us have had that thought at one point or another. Even when we think we have a perfect plan, it never actually works out how we imagined. Life circumstances change, and more importantly, our own interests and our personalities change. We think we have a goal, but then our priorities shift, and then our goals shift too. It's kind of like Mina's abrupt style change from clean-cut streetwear to soft lace and gingham print and petticoats and cottagecore fashion. We need to accept these changes in ourselves and move towards growth. Sometimes our clothes don't fit us anymore. We just don't like to wear them anymore, and that's okay. It just means we're growing up and we're changing. I was trying to refocus and trying to think of like what I wanted to do next. But in the meantime, I was working at the stationery store in Manhattan. Once March came around and everyone started like getting into the COVID mania, my store closed down and I was like laid off. And that was actually really scary that time because I was working in Manhattan. So like every day that I came into work, there were like less people on the subway, less people on the streets. And it was just so ghost town-like by the time that my uh, store ended up closing. But I I didn't think it was like sustainable to be living in New York City anymore. Um, especially when I was like, I don't know when my store is gonna open again. Like, I don't know when like anyone's gonna be hiring again. So. I moved back home, save money, and also just like be out of the city. What did it feel like to be back home? Did it feel like starting from like zero again in any way, or did you still were you still pretty hopeful? It definitely felt like a regression, and I definitely was not hopeful. <laughs> but at the same time, I think because of the circumstances of the entire world, like it did feel like it wasn't just me that was going through all these things, and that definitely helped. And so I guess because you didn't have that pressure. And also because you didn't have a job, <laughs> but you still had that creativity. Like you had been writing some reviews on Letterboxd, which is like that, that like film <laughs> uh, review platform. So with Letterboxd, I, I love Letterboxd, um, still do. But in between the stationary job and the styling job, I was working at a documentary production company. But I was thinking of pivoting into like movies and film. Part of my job was just watching like lots of documentaries <laughs> at a time. Some of them were great. Some of them were like not that good. But I definitely got into this like cycle of like consuming a lot of film content. And you're like, all right, I need a way to keep track of all of this and thus Letterboxd. Right. <laughs> I mean, I definitely wasn't interested in Instagram anymore. I think because of the way that the platform had developed at this time, I felt like it was kind of a waste of my time and energy. In the meantime, I was watching a lot of YouTube videos and I was never a big YouTube person. I was probably like at the beginning of YouTube, uh, back when people did all those like weird comedy skits and like a very Potter musical and everything. But I, I kind of like lost track of what YouTube became over the years. It was a completely different landscape when I started watching again. And I just like started watching it because I was bored. <laughs> and uh, I stumbled across all these like fashion history videos because 
once again, like I worked at Disney World, so I was kind of a Disney adult adjacent. So I was getting these recommendations for Disney content. Eventually, I was just sort of like, you know what, like I could probably do this because I was doing so much research into it also on my own. Um, and I was like, this is like kind of a niche that I think could expand in a way. And also because I wanted to go look at costume design and movies, which I also felt was like even more of a niche of fashion history. I had like a little bit of a of an Instagram following. So I would like do like a little promotion and stuff, but it was mostly just my friends and family who would end up watching the videos. But this is definitely part of the, my success too. But my current friend, her name is Tessa and she runs the channel Modern Girls, which is also like a fashion channel. And she had like, I think like a hundred thousand subscribers. So she was doing pretty well, but she had promoted my video on her channel. Oh, found this like YouTuber, like this video is really good to my video. But I saw that she tagged me on it in my notifications. So then I like went to look at the video and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah, cause the, the numbers were just like, wow. Like I got 60,000 new subscribers like within the week that I posted it. After several attempts to find a suitable career, Mina decided to do something just for the sake of doing it, for the intrinsic value of artistic expression. That's when she turned to making videos about fashion history in the context of film. And I think this worked because she would have done it for free. In fact, she did do it for free. This project, it sprung from passion and a childlike interest. She did it simply because she liked doing it. She was authentic to her desires. And that authenticity cultivated a group of loyal fans that slowly convinced her that this path, the path of being a creator, might work for her. You have a video that works, you're able to monetize. Are you just thinking like, okay, in terms of career, now I just have to keep making videos? Are you having any strategy other than like, all right, this is the next concept? Like, how are you thinking about a career in YouTube? I don't know if you're familiar with YouTube, you have to meet a certain number of like subscribers, a certain number of views before you can monetize. But that video just like blew everything out of the water and I was able to monetize immediately. And once I did, I was like, okay, this is like my new career now. Like I, I don't want to apply for any more jobs. Like this is actually something sustainable for me. I honestly had no strategy at this point in my life. Like for the first like couple months, like I was just like kind of trying to ride the wave of success and trying to strategize what kind of videos I was making that seemed to appeal to the people who were subscribed to me because now my subscriber base was big enough where I felt like I had to make content that other people liked, not just me. So I, I was just like definitely like doing that. And also because now I was thinking about moving back to New York once I was around like a little over a hundred thousand, I got an email from IMG, which is like my current representation. And they wanted to do a contract with me. And that was kind of like at that, that was like the turning point when I was like, okay, now I need to figure out what I'm planning to do like long-term, like how is this going to sustain me for like the next couple of years? And also like when you have someone reach out to you, like how do you have like someone read over a contract or even know that it's a good deal? You know, that's like how they trap a lot of like young creators into really bad contracts because people don't know what they're doing a lot of the times. 
And the information on this is very gatekept. And plus like a lot of people who fall into social media success tend to be younger. So they don't have like as much like experience with contracts. Luckily for me, I had a friend who was a model with IMG and they were like, you better read that contract. Well, like you better get like representation because you don't want to get screwed over. I paid for an entertainment lawyer, which was like a very painful experience to pay for. But I was like, I want this contract to be like tight. I don't want to be in like anything that I'm going to regret later. Yeah, my long-term plan for then was because IMG is like a, a fashion related agency. I wanted to get an ambassadorship with a brand. Like I wanted to launch my own fashion line at some point. Like I, I wanted to sit front row during fashion week. So most of my goals at the time were fashion oriented because I was like, this is the agency that would know what to do. But on top of that, like obviously like the sponsorships too, I started getting hit up by sponsors, which is always exciting, I guess. I guess. I don't know, like I have a love hate with sponsorships because I've gotten some really whack offers and I'm just like, ugh. So what was your first good offer? The first offer I took was with native deodorant. I was actually already using native before I, I did the sponsor. So I was like, okay, like this is like a company that I actually like. And I was like, totally chill with that. Like their points that they wanted me to make were like fine. And I was like really excited to, I feel like if you look at my sponsored uh, integrations, they've kind of like, they're not as enthusiastic as the first couple because I was so excited to get a sponsor. But you know, like I do try to like stick with my ethics in terms of picking sponsors because something that I also am like very aware of is I, I'm looking for like longevity in my career, which means like not doing like really shady things and then getting like exposed for it or something. Like I, I try to navigate very uh, confidently and very like strategically, not just like for my, my, my own personal reputation, but also like, for instance, like I am very anti-fast fashion. I just like, I couldn't work with like a fast fashion sponsor. Like that's just like, ugh, like it kind of like makes my skin crawl. What advice would you give to to content creators that are starting out, like knowing what you know now, being in the position you are now about to pass like a million subscribers on YouTube? Super exciting. What advice would you uh, give that person? You know, like I have been thinking and reflecting a lot on my career so far, because as I've met more people in like the content creation space, I've been able to kind of figure out what I want to do and how I want to navigate it, either aligned with how they do it or completely opposite of what they're doing. And this may sound like not the most like fiscally successful advice, but I always think it's more important for your own mental health to know your own boundaries when it comes to your work and to have that work-life separation because it is so hard to do that once you're in like content creation because the way that these social media platforms operate is for you to be perpetually online and perpetually turning out content. I think it's important to like pick what platform you want to dedicate your time to because I also think it's just not feasible to be like, I'm a TikToker, Instagram or Snapchatter. Like it's exhausting. And unless you're at a point where you can hire teams to manage you know, just as one person, it's going to control your life and it's definitely not going to give you that kind of fulfillment. 
We want to be successful so that we have like that free time to enjoy our lives. And if you're just like constantly on this grind, then you're not going to have that time to do anything that you want to do. Yeah, just like prioritize what you want to do out of your life and not just do things because you feel like everyone else is doing it or because you feel like you'll make like an extra $10,000 because it's just not worth it in the end for your own mental health. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Mickey Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.